Hello? You guys are boisterous, which is surprising considering many of you just got up, so that's awesome. Well, I'm Casey Tigert. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to let you know that the doctor thing on the screen you just saw is not a joke. Um, I actually I did get my doctoral degree in August, so um, just so you know, I wasn't poking fun at Tim and his doctoral thing. So um, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be a part of this. I'm excited to be spending the first day of 2012 with all of you. So I'm excited to be here. And this series has been fantastic that we've spent time in talking about the untold story of Christmas, talking about to understand what was going on in that narrative of the manger and the nativity in Bethlehem, there are things that we need to know that were going on in the background. And it's been great just to uncover some of those things. I hope that that's been enjoyable to you. And I realize that doing a Christmas sermon after Christmas has already passed, it's kind of like, why couldn't you think of something else? You guys just need to stretch Christmas out a little longer. Since we have the decorations up, we might as well find another one. I don't think that's what it is, because honestly, this message that I'm bringing today probably has more relevance to us, because in the last couple of weeks, we've spent time with our families. Some of us, that's been great. Some of us are glad there's a couple states between us. But in either case, we've discovered or maybe rediscovered the reality of what our family is really like because, well, frankly, family or families are weird. Everybody's family is weird. And there's just proof of that when you start to see people's Christmas cards that they send you with their pictures on it. For example, check this one out. This is a pretty normal, typical family Christmas card, right? Except for the jaguar mauling the antelope in the front. Nothing says Merry Christmas like a little Wild Kingdom violence, huh? Families are weird. Families are messed up. Families are strange. We're really more like the Kardashians than we are like the Waltons these days. We really need to own that. And some ways that we're weird in sort of non-harmful ways, and other ways we're weird in ways that are damaging. There are things I've said to my daughter, she's only four, and there are things I've said to her that I've gone, yeah, that's going to come out in therapy one of these days. Pretty sure I'm going to hear about that again. So we really shouldn't have any trouble with the fact that behind the narrative of Christmas, behind the story of the nativity and the baby and Mary and Joseph, there is a family story. And the family that's in this story is a dysfunctional family. Now, the reason this is important is because not only are families weird, but families can be a very beautiful thing. They're the ones we lean into. They're the ones that lift us up when we're struggling. They give us hope when we're wrestling with things. But families are also very fragile. One miscooked turkey can lead to decades of scrutiny from then on. There's, families can fall apart at the drop of a hat. So I think it's critical for us to see the fact that Jesus wants to come and bring healing in the area of family. Jesus wants to come and bring hope where there is hurt, bring joy where there is pain when it comes to family. And one of the ways that we can see that is by walking back into the story of Jesus and his dysfunctional family. I want to take you to this passage that we read every Christmas that's in Luke chapter 2. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was, to take this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. 
And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, it never fails that every year if there's a children's Christmas pageant, some poor kid loses the bet and has to be the nasty innkeeper. Right? I mean, who is this guy? Who is this disgruntled Motel 6 manager who sees an eight-and-a-half-month pregnant woman and says, I got nothing for you. Can you not roll out of bed into the lobby or something? No, no. There's a stable in the back where we keep all the animals. That should be good enough for you. So some poor kid gets to play this really awful person. Who really does that to somebody? She was great with child, as we hear in the story. Who? Who sends that woman out back to hang out with the animals? But the reality is the Bible was translated from another language. And the New Testament was actually written in a language called Greek. And so when the Bible was translated, there are some things that don't exactly make the transition so well from Greek to English. And this is one of those times. Because Luke, who's writing this passage, when he says there's no room in the inn, the word he uses for inn is this word, kataluma. Say that with me. Cataluma. It's just a nice word, isn't it? It rolls right off the tongue. For Luke, a cataluma is more like a guest room. It's a room in your house that you keep for someone if they were to come and visit. So you keep a bed made in there and you keep it nice. And when your family comes to visit, that's where they stay. So when Luke says this, he says there was no room in the cataluma. There was no room in the guest room. And we know that that's what he uses because he has another word that he uses for a hotel. And that word is this one, pandokeon. Say that with me. Pandokeon. See, big ah, gladiator kind of word, right? Pandokeon is what they use when they're talking about a hotel or a hostel, a place where you pay to stay. And he uses that to talk about places like that throughout the Bible. So when Luke says this, he's saying they came and found no room in the guest room. Now let's back up into the story for just a minute with this knowledge in mind. Joseph and Mary have just come on a hundred mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now we often see Mary riding on a donkey, but chances are they didn't own a donkey. Uh, the, the carpentry business for Joseph wasn't going all that well, so there's a very good chance he couldn't have afforded a donkey. And since there was no other transportation, stagecoach or Amtrak, there was no other way for them to get from Beth- Nazareth to Bethlehem. So Mary, at eight and a half months, walked a hundred miles. Have you ever seen a pregnant lady try to walk from the couch to the bathroom? It is a work of the grace of God. So you're talking about a woman who has all this stuff going on in her and has now just made a hundred mile journey on foot along with her husband. Exactly. You're feeling the the anxiety and the, the irritation that she was probably feeling. But... You also need to know that when they were in Nazareth, there were a lot of people who knew them because it was a small town. And the good thing about small towns is everybody knows everybody. The bad thing about small towns is that everybody knows everybody. And so they would have known this engaged couple who they always saw together and were never alone together. The lady was pregnant, which translated to them as Joseph ain't the daddy. And so the town would have been abuzz with the talk of the baby but no wedding gown. So they left a place where their character was being dragged through the mud. So they carried all this stuff with them on this hundred mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And when they get there, all they're looking for is a kataluma. Because if they're going to Bethlehem to register for the census, it means that Joseph owns property in Bethlehem. Which means that Joseph has family in Bethlehem. 
Catch this for a second. It's not some disgruntled innkeeper that kicks them out of the house. There's no innkeeper even mentioned in the Bible text. This is not somebody they don't know. The people who kick Mary and Joseph out to stay with the animals in the barn are their own family. Man, that's cold. No room in the inn translates into, "Uh uh-uh, not in my house. Don't bring her in my house. There's no room for you with all of that here. That's the story of Jesus' birth. It's a story of family rejection. I mean, come on, they saw Joseph, this family who knows him very well, and they said, didn't we teach you better than that? I mean, come on, Joseph. This woman obviously has been sleeping around. This is not your child that she's carrying in her belly. You've got every legal right to divorce her and kick her away. Why would you bring her to this house? I mean, bring home a girl with a bad attitude. Bring home a Republican. Bring home somebody else. Don't bring that kind of girl home to this place. There is no room for you in our kataluma, in our guest room. All that sin that they saw in Mary and Joseph, they said there's no space for that. There's no space for you here. So because of that, they probably stayed in a cave with a bunch of animals. Now, there was no clean, nice little stable like we see in the nativity. It was more like a hollowed out place in the rock where the animals would sleep. And then there would be a feeding trough outside of that where the animals would go and eat their food. Out exposed to the elements, out exposed to everything that you're trying to keep a newborn baby away from when you give birth to them in the hospital. All of those things that could threaten their life early on, out under the stars, exposed to the elements, and probably yards away from family and comfort, and the kataluma. Not to mention the fact that if you read the text closely, you notice that it says, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, if you've ever seen a childbirth, what you know is that there's usually several people, several people involved in the whole process. And it was the same when Mary gave birth to Jesus. There was usually somebody that came along and helped But the text tells us that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, I don't know what happened to Joseph. Maybe he collapsed. He passed out. He was like, whoa. And he's laying somewhere off to the side in the the stable in the cave. I don't know what happened to Joseph. But what it says is that everything that Mary is doing, she's flying solo. She's screaming out into the Bethlehem night, giving birth to the Savior of the world within earshot of people who are their family, who are supposed to care about them. And there she is, laboring in the middle of all of that by herself. Did she cut her own cord? Did she clean Jesus up all on her own? Out there amongst family who could probably hear everything that was going on. Did Mary have to fly solo? In the midst of all of that, did they really even care what was happening to her at the time? Now, I get it. Listen, Christmas, this Christmas has probably been really weird for you because this Christmas story is incredibly gritty and incredibly imperfect. It's not the sanitized version that maybe we've been growing up with. To think of Mary going through birth all by herself while family were in the house going, man, can she keep it down? We're trying to get stuff done in here. It makes it a little too real for us because we begin to ask ourselves this question. If the adopted father and mother of Jesus experienced this level of family rejection, then what about us? 
if Jesus' family felt the awkwardness of family rejection the way that we do, the uncle that, or aunt that we can't stand but we smile at them because we want to keep everything civil for the family dinner, the, the father or mother we can't forgive for what they've done, even if they're long past and gone away, the sibling who always got first dibs, who always got all the attention, who always got all the approval, and now we have to just be that other kid in the family that's left a mark on our lives What does that mean to us? We're forced to look across steaming plates of food at Christmas and realize what our family has done to us, and we're supposed to keep it together? We're supposed to celebrate? Is that really what's supposed to be happening? I'm not sure that that's possible. We develop this identity because of that. We become the ignored child of three. We become the son or daughter who has been abused. We become the spouse who is ignored and discredited at every turn. And what happens is this sinks in and becomes apparent in every part of our culture. Chuck Swindoll talked about a teacher who gave her students an assignment. And she said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to finish this sentence. I wish... And these were some of the responses that she got back. One student said, I wish I could get straight A's so that my father would love me. One student said, I wish I had an M1 rifle so I could shoot those who made fun of me. These are are kids. It has so sunken into the depths of our culture, this idea that we have been rejected, this idea that we have to earn the acceptance of everybody else, and the ones who loved us the most have turned us aside. The ones who should have been in our quarter, should have been fighting for us, have said, there's no room in the Cataluma for you. There's no room in this family for you. I want to, on the first day of 2012, hopefully give you the best news. And I pray that this is a breath of fresh air for some of us in this room this morning. And that's this. Every single one of us, we are all rejects. Called to follow a rejected Messiah. It began when Jesus was born, but it continued throughout his life. Jesus would be rejected by everybody that he loved. Mary, in Mark chapter 3, she didn't know what to do with him, and so she and his brothers went to find Jesus and say, we've got to bring him back. He has fallen completely off the map. He's gone crazy. He's out here not eating. He's not taking care of himself. And so she rejects most of his ministry and what he's doing until somewhere near the very end. Jesus, when he's in the garden at the end of his life, those who are closest to him, his disciples, the twelve who he's poured his whole life into and loved and taught and edified and built up, at the end of his life when Jesus is being arrested, the scripture says this in Matthew 26, then all the disciples left him and fled. At the moment when he needed them most, those who he had poured the most into ran away from him. One of the disciples we actually hear runs away naked. His coat comes off in the middle of the, of the journey, and he doesn't even bother to go back for it. I mean, that's a serious level of rejection. When you're willing to streak through the Garden of Gethsemane just to get away from him, I mean, there's a lot of things I wouldn't streak for, but that obviously shows you the depths of it. We are all following this Jesus, this rejected Messiah. So if you feel like you have been rejected by those who should have been in your corner, those who should have been closest to you, who should have understood you, if you've ever been called outcast or freak or sinner or loser, burnout, waste or disappointment, then realize this. You are in great company. You are in the company of Jesus Christ, the rejected Messiah, when it began at his birth. 
And to be honest with you, this is the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell. It's a story of rejection and acceptance. You go all the way back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve. They reject the one commandment that God has for them. Notice that. They reject him first. And he has to kick them out of the garden. Israel rejected God as their king. He said, I want to be your king. I want to lead you. They're like, no, we'd like for people to be our kings. And so they pick some kings that make Blagojevich look like Mother Teresa throughout their history. And they end up getting on the wrong track, on the wrong path, on the wrong road. So God says, I want you to come back to me, but they continue to reject him. And up until the point of Jesus' birth, even, people in that culture felt like the only way you were accepted by God is if you were born into the right family. I mean, could you imagine that? The only way God is going to accept you is based on who your mom and dad are. As Tim said in the political story message, either you were Jewish or you weren't Jewish. There wasn't any middle ground at the time when Jesus was born. So when this family rejects Mary and Joseph, what they're doing is really just acting out of a long-standing story that they've been hearing over and over again. A story of rejection instead of acceptance. A story of turning away those things they don't understand or don't agree with instead of trying to listen to what God is doing. So listen, at this time in the holidays, if there are people in your family that you can't stand or you don't like or maybe they're just jerks realize this it's hereditary it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation it's hereditary jerkhood they have been learning how to be jerks from their parents and their parents and their parents it's something that we've come by quite honestly and to be honest none of us are exempt we're all likely to reject someone else because at some point or another we've been rejected it's the way we've been taught to deal with the world. And because of that, because of that, the message of the Bible turning things around is this. God is reaching out for all creation, all of the rejects, and sweeping them back into the glorious grace that we find in his arms. And notice that every time in the history of the Bible, every time God is rejected, he reaches out to those who have rejected him. Jesus, the rejected Messiah, hanging on the cross, listen to what he says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And what does he mean there? Does he mean they all went, oh, we crucified you. Ah, duh. How do we do that? Whoops, sorry. Jesus means that they don't know how to deal with the world any differently. They've been taught how to reject, not to accept. They've been taught to push away rather than to receive. They're just doing what they've always been taught to do. And because of this, God has to rehabilitate us as rejects. So now, because of him, we're all rehabilitated rejects living into the family of God. Isn't that impressive? Now, we believe at Parkview that happens by baptism. We believe it It happens when you shed off that old way of doing things, that way of rejection instead of acceptance. When we turn things around and we begin to see the world in the light of coming into God's acceptance rather than being rejected because that's the only way we know how to do things. But once we figure out that, once we come into that new relationship with God, we could say, boy, I'm glad I'm accepted now. I'm just going to hang around until Jesus teleports me off this burning rock and I've got a better eternal destination than burning in hell. The problem is that's not the story of the Bible. And the other problem is it's just not helpful because it's not as if when we come out of those waters we unlearn how to reject. We simply decide that the way we relate to God now is based on rejection rather than acceptance. There's a lady 
preparing for Christmas dinner. And she pulls out the ham out of the fridge and she sets it on the counter. And she takes a knife and she cuts the ends off. And she sticks it in the pan and puts it in the oven and turns it on. And then she begins to think, why do I cut the ends off that ham every year? And so she says, oh, that's, that's something mom always did. So she picks up the phone and she calls her mom and she says, Mom, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, how are you? And listen, I have a question. Why do, why do we cut the ends off the ham? Does it increase the moisture? Does it make it a better ham? She goes, I don't know, honey. Your grandmother taught me how to do that. Why don't you call her? So she hangs up the phone. She calls grandma. And she says, Grandma, listen, hi. Oh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too, honey. Why do we cut the ends off the ham? Does it make it better? Does it see? What, what's that for? She goes, oh, honey, I don't know. Your great-grandmother taught me how to do that. You know, she's still alive, and you haven't called her in a while. You should probably call her. It's Christmas. So she hangs up the phone, picks up the phone, calls her grandmother. Hi, Grandma. Merry Christmas. Yes, yes, yes. Listen, why do we cut the ends off the ham? Does it make it better? Does it make it juicier? And she goes, honey, I don't know why you cut the ends off the ham. I just never had a pan that was big enough. There are things we've been handed from generation to generation. We have no idea why we do them. So when we look at our families and we look at the rejection that has happened to us because of our families, it's been passed down. Chances are we don't even know that we're doing it. We've simply adopted the way we see the world based on what has happened to us in the past. And what's dangerous about that is we can bring that into our relationship with God because we can honestly say this, if my father rejected me because blank, because I wasn't smart enough, because I wasn't good enough, or, or for no reason whatsoever, then why would I expect God to do anything different? If my parents crushed me because I didn't keep all the rules, why wouldn't I expect God to do anything differently. So as long as I make it to the right church services and as long as I do the right things and kind of keep my nose clean, then God will accept me. But the problem with that is that relationship with God just doesn't last. John Ortberg talks about it this way. He said there are me's that we construct, me's that we try to make up based on rejection. One of them is the me I pretend to be. The one we want to convince people we are even though deep inside we're afraid that we're not. So that they don't reject us. As long as they see us as being this kind of person, we'll always be accepted. There's the me I think I should be. As long as I'm as good as my neighbor or that person that I'm always around and not worse than them, then surely God will accept me for that. There's the me other people want me to be. Yes, God's opinion matters, but really I want to know what everybody else thinks. That's what I determine my decisions by. There's the me I'm afraid God wants. The one who keeps all the rules and who never messes up. And if I mess up, that's a demerit in the column. And you know, at the end of the day, God could just smite me from heaven with a lightning bolt. That's the me I'm afraid that God wants. And then there's the me that fails to be. At the end of the day, when we try to be better and we try to be good and we fail to do so, then we come to the fact that we believe that we're failures. That's not the me that God wants for you. In, in 2012, listen, God doesn't want you to be a better version of the old you. There's a me that I am meant to be. A me that is filled with life and life to the full, which is what Scripture talks about. A, a me that knows and understands that I am a child of God and nothing, nothing can take that from me. No person, no family member, no society. If you don't walk away from this with anything else for 2012, you need to realize you right now are a child of God and nothing can take that from you. It is your right as a human being created in the image of God. Nothing can take that from you. 
And when we begin to learn what that means, learn the fact that we're accepted by God and begin living out of that, well, things start to change. Because God did not accept us so that we could just stay and be accepted. He accepted us so that we can begin to live the life of acceptance. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, remember that you were once at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once rejects have now been brought in by the sweet, strong arm of God into His family. He continues on in chapter 5. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It's beautiful. You are Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Now, instead of being rejects, you are part of God's family. You are welcomed in. You are not just some reject out on the sides. You are more than that. You belong to someone. We've been accepted into a bigger story. We've been accepted into a revolutionary story that we are more than just human beings. We are family. The message of 2012 is that we've been welcomed into a life of acceptance so that we can begin to transform into the me's that we were meant to be. And this isn't just some positive talk that you can hear anywhere else. This is really a hardcore talk about what actually changes us, what actually begins to bring transformation in us. Here's a reality about me, some useless trivia, just in case you wanted to know. I've always wanted to be taller. You ask my wife, she'll tell you that I've always talked about that. I'd just like to be a little bit taller. But the problem is I can't really try harder to be taller. Just because I wake up one morning and go, I'm going to be 6'5 today, doesn't make me Bill Brown. It just doesn't happen that way. He is 6'5". I am not. I'm 34. I'm pretty sure I'm done growing. So that's never going to happen. So unless Peter Brady is right and you can hang from the jungle gym and stretch your body out and get taller, then I'm done for So many people have come to me and said, I want to try harder to be a better Christian. I have to tell you something. You're going to fail if you just try harder to be better. Because the harder you try to be better, the more you're going to be frustrated and the less better you're going to become. The reality about transformation is it starts with where are we living out of? What are we living our lives out of? Let's take just a, a piece of Jesus' teaching and apply it here. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, which the, our Father, which you are familiar with, He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness is one of those subjects that we'd all just like to kind of forget about and walk away from. It's like forgiveness for somebody cutting us off in traffic or taking our spot at the mall, which may be a little raw right now. That kind of forgiveness is pretty easy. It's like, oh, no, it's cool. I forgive you. you know, put your finger down. I forgive you. Yeah, it's good. But the ones that really sting are the ones where we go, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what they did to me. My father, my uncle, my aunt, my brother, my sister, my cousin. You don't, you don't understand what they did to me. So you're asking me to do something that I'm not capable of doing. That's not what Jesus is asking you to do. Jesus is saying... Forgive as you've been forgiven. The only way you know how to accept someone and rather than reject them is because you first have been accepted rather than rejected. 
So because of the forgiveness of God, we learn and our minds are changed about how to do that. We've been born into a cycle of rejection, so if we're going to not live that way, we've got to learn how to break the cycle. This year, you don't need another gym, you don't need a new diet plan, you don't need a new Oprah book, you don't need any of those things to bring transformation to your life. What you have to begin to learn is how to break the cycle of rejection that we've been handed down like the square ham from generation to generation. We have to learn a new way to see the world. And the Bible understands this because Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your habits, of your practices, of your reactions to other people. Well, all of those things are important, but Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We see the world and we think of things that happen to us in terms of rejection first. We have to begin to see them as God teaches us to see them, which is in terms of not rejection but acceptance because you can't try harder to forgive or stop the things that God is bringing up in your life. You have to learn how to first be accepted by Him and then everything else starts to fall into place. I will never forget the first time I ever met Holly's family, my wife's family. And they're here, so I'm going to be gentle about that. Can I just give you a suggestion, those of you who are parents, that you're going to introduce your kids to their extended family, try a set of grandparents at a time. Um, just kind of like budget that, because I met all of them at once, the whole family. Now, I grew up in West Virginia, and uh, my wife grew up in Pennsylvania, and we share a border, and that's about it. That's about the only similarities between West Virginia and Pennsylvania. They always joked with her that my wife was going to marry some redneck from West Virginia, Yeah, so she got a preacher from West Virginia. So 50-50, she did okay on that one. So I remember the first time I went home, and I was, you know, every time, I, every time you get into a new group of people, you kind of listen for different things, and you, you see different traditions, you see different ways of handling conversations and, th- and things like that. And so I noticed the differences between us. But the one thing that I really noticed was I was a good five inches taller than every other person in her family. So part of my dream of being taller is actually comes true when we have family gatherings. And so I, I just, throughout our life together, I've kind of thought, how will I ever fit in to this? This tall boy with the southern drawl at the time, which has since disappeared. How would I ever be a part of this family? And over time, they accepted me because they had to. No, they accepted me and they brought me in. And now I have a function. I have a role. Every Christmas, my job is to get the dishes off the top shelf. So I have a purpose within that family. It's really great. That's the reality of what it looks like. Some of you don't know what that feels like. You don't know what it feels like to be accepted by a family, to have people throw their arms around you and love you and bring you in and give you the value that you've been looking for. And the reality is we may never get that from our families here on earth. We need to look at it from another place. We need to get acceptance from God first before we look for it from anyone else and begin to live out that accepted life that he's been calling us to. Look, I know, I know some of you don't believe you can ever be forgiven of what you've done or where you've been. I understand that. Today, I want to I invite you into a new family, a family filled with rejects who never thought God could accept us for what we had done. And yet he still says, come home, come home. 
Some of you I know can't imagine forgiving your father, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, grandmother for what they have done to you or said to you or not done for you. I understand that. Can I invite you today to stop holding those people hostage in your head? The only person that's dying from it is you. Come, let Jesus change your mind and release you from the brokenness of holding people hostage to things that they've done in the past. Let them release that. Let them go so that you can begin to understand what it means to be accepted by God. Parents, look, we won't ever be the parents that we need to be until we come to terms with the fact that God needs to parent us first. That needs to show us what it means to be accepted as sons or daughters so that we might parent our children better. Spouses, you will never know what it means to love your spouse in the right way until it starts to flow out of a God who constantly accepts and forgives and restores Sons and daughters, you will never know, you will never know what it means to truly live that accepted life until you look for value from someplace else other than your parents. Because listen, we've been handed the square ham. We as your parents have been given a tradition of rejection that has gone on for generations and generations. And we at Parkview, we know this is difficult. We know this isn't the easiest thing to do. When you came in in your bulletin today, there's a little card. I ask you to pull that out right now. We understand that To have our minds changed, we need to be trained to think differently. And so one of the things that we offer here at Parkview are classes and class experiences to help begin to break open some of those ways of changing our minds so that we see life not in terms of the rejected life, but in terms of the accepted life. So there are two sides to this. These are some learning opportunities we offer. Just, and they're simple. We try not to make them too academic. They open up the doors for God to begin changing your mind on some things. I would encourage you, as you go into 2012, if you need to have your mind changed by God, and we all do, so you do, so let me just help you with that part. You do need that. Uh, that you would take a look at this. Find something that fits in your schedule and sounds like something that you need. Go online, sign up for it, show up. Let us help you train your mind to think differently about the world. Because honestly... That's the only thing that's going to bring true transformation in this coming year is when we break the cycle of rejection that we've felt at the hands of our family, when we stop reliving the pain of getting kicked out of the Cataluma and we begin to think about what God could really do in us in this next year. Because here's the reality. Jesus, hanging on the cross near the end of his life, says this. And it's a very dark phrase. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me why have you forsaken me you could even slide the word rejected me in there and no one will ever experience that level of darkness nobody in the history of the world will ever again experience the darkness of being rejected by God and they have the opportunity to do that because Jesus took that on for us he experienced the depths of darkness in a way that none of us ever have to do it again because when the rejected Messiah died and rose from the dead, he kicked open the doors to the living room of the family of God and says, my kataluma is always open because you are my family. And he put his signature on it with Jesus coming forth from the grave at Easter and welcoming us into a life of acceptance. Do you want that? Do you hunger for that in 2012? Do you long for someone to sweep you in and begin to show you who you really were meant to be and born to be? Because of Jesus, you have that opportunity now. You have that opportunity here and now. I don't know where you are with this, 
But I believe that somebody in this room, many of us in this room, are feeling the twinge of needing to have our identity shaped by something other than our family who kicked us out of the Cataluma. We need to be something else, something different than that. I want to invite you out of the cycle of rejection, out of the cycle of brokenness, and into the family of God. Would you like to come? The doors are wide open. Let's pray together. Jesus, in the midst of this room, I know there is there are raw emotions. There are hurts and pains that are deeper than can be described in words. I know that there are long roads of forgiveness that the first steps are the scariest. And, and I know that there is wounding and hurt that's physical and emotional and spiritual. God, I know that that's resting in this place. And the heaviness of it can drag us out of the life you have intended for us. But I pray that your spirit right now would remind every person within the sound of my voice that the deep and, and underlying purpose for their life is not to continue to live in a cycle of rejection, but to jam a rod into the works and to break the cycle of rejection and begin to live a new cycle, a cycle of acceptance and forgiveness and hope, all because of your son, the rejected Messiah, forced out of the Cataluma and into the darkness so that we might have life and life to the full. So come, God, speak to the people who are in this place. If they need to be baptized, if they need to make a commitment to you and cleanse themselves of the things that they've been struggling with, I pray that you would do that in them today. I pray that you would move them, restore them, begin to bring them hope and peace in ways that they've never had before. Thank you so much for lying in the elements in that trough so that we might know that we never have to be rejected again. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.